Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Better Movement Podcast. Uh, my guest this week is Greg Lehman. Greg is a physical therapist, chiropractor, and researcher. And I asked him to come on to talk about a new study that just came out that I found interesting. And I'll get into that in a minute, but first I wanted to give a little bit of background on Greg uh, for those that don't uh, already know him, and then I'll talk about why the study was interesting. So Greg is a popular writer and teacher. He teaches uh, about how to treat musculoskeletal pain with physical therapy and exercise. And his main interest is how do we reconcile pain science with biomechanics? Or how do we integrate the bio with the psychosocial and have a person-centered approach? And one of the ways that Greg is trying to answer that question, he's looking at many different types of therapies with very different approaches and strategies and techniques and philosophies. And usually he's asking, what do all these techniques have in common? I think that's a very good question. That's why Greg has a lot of insight. Uh, He's a friend, and we've been in communication for many years about this uh, topic, and he was actually my first guest on this podcast a few years ago. Uh, One good thing about talking to Greg is he's got a very broad knowledge of all the relevant research, therefore he always supports his arguments with citations, and he has a very good context for interpreting the meaning of any one particular study. So if a new study comes out, showing that therapy X works or doesn't work. Greg probably can think of three or four other studies that had the opposite result, and so you can put that in context. Another good thing about Greg is that he's very aware of his own biases, so if a study comes out that validates his ideas, he's going to be the first one to stand up and talk about its limitations and not apply double standards to studies. For this reason, I thought Greg would be a very good person to come on the podcast and help uh, talk to me about a new study that just came out that I find very interesting uh, because it showed very good results for a kind of physical therapy called cognitive functional therapy in treatment of chronic low back pain, also called CFT. This was developed by Peter O'Sullivan and Karen O'Sullivan and Mary O'Keefe and Charton V.B. Fursum and, and some others, names who I'm probably forgetting. Uh, in my view, and as well as Greg, CFT is one of the best examples of kind of a formalized approach to treating musculoskeletal pain that incorporates insights from pain science and biomechanics and person-centered care. It's kind of like a formal way of like how I might practice or Greg might practice or people in our community uh, like to practice. I'll put some links Uh, in the show notes about where you can find information about it. But in this podcast, we're going to discuss a study that just found very good results uh, for this method. And, you know, we're going to try to, you know, look at the strengths of the study, but also the limitations and put it in the context of the larger uh, literature. And we're also going to talk kind of in general about how we look at evidence. Are we, do we have blind spots what, you know, where are we cherry picking evidence? How do we, you know, make take account of everything that's out there? So this is kind of an informal short podcast that was done on short notice, but uh, hope you enjoy it. Okay, Greg Lehman, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me, buddy. Nice to see you. Nice to see you. Okay, so I've got you on on short notice to talk about. Uh, Kind of one thing to talk about this new study on cognitive cognitive functional therapy, otherwise known as CFT, that just came out, and get your take on that. 
uh, because it was a pretty good result. It's a result that people in our community kind of like to see because it validates uh, kind of an approach to things that we both like and we've both been writing about for years. And so we've been blogging and advocating, you know, a certain way of dealing with uh, musculoskeletal pain and criticizing a more traditional, conventional way. You know, our approach is more kind of like biopsychosocial and informed by pain science. And the approach we criticize is this more traditional biomedical, biomechanical, uh, you know, type of style. And, you know, in our community, um, we often see that when a study comes out validating, you know, like our way of doing things, it's all, you know, yay for that study, whether it's, you know, validating our approach or criticizing one we don't like without that much critical analysis of the study. And but when there's a study that comes out, which kind of says our approach isn't doing that well or another one is that we don't like, then you're picking apart the study very carefully and saying why it, why it doesn't apply. So we've just got this really good study on CFT and, you know, everyone is on the bandwagon cheerleading it. And I thought you would be the guy to uh, maybe give a critical take on this study uh, because you've talked about this in the past about kind of the importance of, you know, not getting high on your own supply. <laughs> yeah it's just consistency no i always my uh my theme is i love cft so like if you had to could describe my practice it would be cft you know that's that i remember writing about it in 2013 uh, when i first started reading about them in 2005 i was like oh thank goodness there's other people out there like me you know, so like I, I've they validated me without a doubt. And I and I think they're excellent researchers. So I'm hugely in their camp. Um, I, I love the way they teach. I love their research. But I have to put that out there. OK. You know, yeah, I think yeah, it's so- a, I, I think it's a great way to manifest the biopsychosocial model. Just so let, let's go back just a little bit. Tell my listeners, my listeners know you probably, but remind everyone of your uh, background and, and, you know, your credentials to evaluate research. Cause you've done some research too. Yeah. And uh, so I, m- my credentials are, I'm just good at asking questions. That, that's what I, I've only, I only you have, have a, you do have a certain education though, right? Sure. I, I have a master's and you know, there's research methods, but what I always did well on in my master's and I remember the PhDs and it was, it was asking good questions in a research to understand, like it's just basic logic sometimes when you when you critique a research paper. I'm not a statistician, so I always have to go to the statisticians for help with that stuff. But just basic logic that that's my background is that I have a I have a good master's in asking good questions. So that, okay. that's my background there. So so when you say that you like CFT uh, and you were kind of you know surprised to find out other people were thinking about you. Tell us a little bit about your thinking. Sometimes you say you're a movement optimist. You've been critical of, you know, I don't, I don't know what the name to call it, a traditional biomechanical, biomedical, kinesiopathological approach. Give us a quick summary of of the problems you see with the traditional approach and the direction you'd like things to go instead. So the the, the Here's the thing. The problem with the traditional approach is just a bit tad myopic and we often attribute causation where we shouldn't. So if you have a paper where um, someone will think the kneecap pain is caused from the hip adducting or something like that, and people will call that a faulty movement pattern, that researcher will then go do an intervention where they try to change how that person moves 
and there's no control group and those people get better and they have less pain, people will then conclude, aha, that hip abduction was a horrible thing. You know, that's what was causing the pain. And I would critique that and say it's such a such a fragilistic view of the body that we can't handle these deviations from from uh, a, a neutral posture. And when you look at those research papers, there's often another explanation for why the person got better besides there being a change in hip adduction or, or something like that. So that that's my that's my knock on the traditional bio biomedical view where it's like there's something dysfunctional about you you know a muscle is tight a muscle is weak you move wrong this this isn't firing in the right way you need to be fixed by somebody else and that was always been my critique with the bio biomechanical approach it it doesn't mean that changing how someone moves and mechanics aren't helpful in helping some someone get out of pain it just means like those certain movement patterns aren't inherently faulty. That that has always been the my uh, tune that I regularly sing. Is that is that what you're wondering? Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and also these approaches they don't take enough consideration of of uh, the role of the nervous system, the immune system, thoughts and emotions, and the complexity of pain. And it's kind of the single factor. You know, yeah. what is your movement doing? That kind of stuff. You know, we know that. And then you call it uh, movement optimism. Why? Why? What's the optimism part? So it's it's this idea that we can get away with a lot. And this isn't – I coined it movement optimism, meaning your spine can flex and you can be fine. You can have lots of pronation and you can be fine. <clears throat> but the, the way it sort of evolved is there's also an optimism in human resiliency, meaning you can have a lot of bad stuff going on in your life that can contribute to pain, depression, anxiety, stress, worry, fear, negative beliefs. You can have these things and you can actually be doing well. Like we, we, we have a way to cope with these things. So it's not just about, you know, uh, being optimistic on the wonderful ways that the body can move. It's really being about optimistic about the resiliency of, of humans. Right. Right. And so you say that, what was it in 2000? When did you discover CFT and you were kind of surprised to, to find oh. other people were thinking like you and formalizing and systematizing these ideas, which formerly weren't really all as much formalized? Probably 2005 was when I started reading their stuff. And then, and then they, you could see their evolution through the years as well to really branching out. They used to be very biomechanical with the acknowledgement of the biopsychosocial, they always acknowledged it. And then slow over time, their, their view on biomechanics, like, like Pete O'Sullivan, he's sort of the originator of it. He used to talk about, I never agree with this. So I was ahead of him on this one. <laughs> Just kidding. He used to talk about, you have to get the upper lumbar spine to move optimally in the lower lumbar spine. And there's a right way to move. And then slow over time that started changing. And it was more like, well, if it hurts when you do that, you know, stop doing that and let's find other ways to con control your pain. Yeah. And then so he's kind of and then so when he puts together CFT, I mean, that was my reaction too. I was kind of like I had all of my kind of opinions about the way things should be done and how you do it, you know, a BPS treatment and how you consider the cognitions and the emotions and, and the fear of movement, but, but also use movement and yeah, when I saw CFT, I'm like, this is like a structured, formalized, systematic way to implement, you know, a lot of what I would like to do. So I was really psyched to see that tested and see it do well. Yeah, for, for sure. 
Uh, so, and I, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, do, so my recollection is after it started to get tested, it was showing much better results for disability than pain. I'm not sure how many trials that have been, but what's your, what's your familiar? Yeah. yeah. So I don't get caught up in too much of that because I use it as a framework. I don't use it too much as exactly to tell me what to do. I just think it gives you options in there. Um, but anyway, a lot of that was Mary O'Keefe's research before that was Shart uh, and Vibe Fursum's work that was showing that, you know, on the, compared to the control group. And the control group wasn't inert. It was still like exercise or manual therapy and advice. And so when you would compare it to another Freeman program, you know, it, it would outperform in disability but uh, measures, but not often with the measures of pain. Although there'd be trends, especially in Mary's paper, there was trends where pain reduction was greater in the CFG uh-huh. group. Yeah. Yeah. And I think what what's the approach? It's got like three components, right? Uh, one is the making sense of pain, kind of similar to like uh, the neuroscience pain education, using that a little bit, not preaching pain science at people, but using no. the people's current stories to turn them towards more adaptive, helpful beliefs about pain. Yeah, that's that's what resonates with me. Like Pete will not talk about the homunculus, Peter O'Sullivan. That that's what's great. Like making sense means they they understand what's going on. You know, someone has explained why they have pain. That new explanation incorporates the biopsychosocial. That new explanation is like actionable. Yeah, right? and and it's based on the current hope. existing story that the client has. You're not giving yeah. them a whole new scientific framework that maybe doesn't make any sense to them. You're saying, tell no. start, tell me right now, what's your explanation? If it's a, a good adaptive explanation, maybe you wouldn't even change it, or you'd work within yeah, the metaphors that they're already using. Yeah, so often it's not. That's that's where it started. That people had these negative cognitions about their back or something like that. That's the yeah. classic patient. They've been told, you know, if you keep bending your spine, the disc is going to wear away and then it's going to herniate. And that's where it's already herniated. That's why you have pain. So now the person is braced and not moving and fearful. Right. right? So they, there, there really was a need to for those people that would fail that viewpoint of the body. Right. And that's where CFP was wonderful. And then the other another component is the exposure to threatening situations uh like for example if you're really scared of bending over then we're going to start exposing ourselves to that under control in a way that you feel like you can be safe and control what's going on is that how much do you now when i've seen peter o'sullivan do that i went to one of his Mm. uh seminars and i've seen his videos someone's terrified of bending over we start bending over there's a risk of a flare-up it seems kind of scary to me are you he seems and he seems rather aggressive with that what's your what's your approach on that uh i think he is aggressive but he's confident so like he's pretty famous for saying like you you can't you can't be afraid of pain uh, as well you can't be you have to have confidence in the, in the body but uh I, I don't doubt that that'll flare some some people up so th- this is just an opinion i think they've seemed to have changed a little bit they've really gone the valean route which is the graded or exposure in vivo approach they you'll see papers from them tim mitchell in 2015 where they were having people bend less i don't know if you remember my course i would have those pictures in where they 
they had someone with a, a more neutral spine. So it's not always about uh, flexion. The, the idea there is the reason they have someone flexing is because the person hasn't been flexing and they're afraid to flex. So they teach them ways to to move their spine in ways that they haven't done with real, whatever. The, it's the George Costanza approach to rehab, right? You know, everything in your life is wrong. You need to do the opposite. So, you know, they're always bracing and rigid and guarded. So they say, hey, let's be loose, fluid and confident. And they teach right. them how to do that. And then yeah. you have that wow moment of like, I can't believe I just touched my toes again. And that's that's where they will call that. This is a behavioral experiment and you violated their expectation and all of that stuff. So I don't know where they are with like just symptom modification or if it's all a exposure to flexion now. I've, right. I can't quite nail them well, down. I guess it's that. exposure to whatever you're afraid of. And then, the, and then the third component is, I guess, lifestyle modification, which is just common sense. Let's figure out what might be contributing to the pain based on our, how we made sense of it. And then maybe start a program for exercise, which is okay, if sleeping better or whatever. So just like really common sense, person-centered, biopsychosocial approach. Um, yeah, okay. I, but I think I think when they do the healthy activity stuff, it really makes sense to the person. I think there's buy-in, there's optimism there. I think that might be some of the secret sauce. Yeah, it's not it. like here's your exercise program. It's like what can we – what what do you like to do already? What can we do? You mentioned you like to walk a lot, but now you don't. What about taking that up again? I assume it would be something like that. Yeah, very tailored to the person. Very meaningful. Yeah, yeah. So that that's kind of I like that. So uh, well, let's talk about the study. What what was your impressions of the study? I have some of the facts on on the good results. If you want me to go over it, or if you remember those, or I do. I would actually. <laughs> Before I'm critical of it, uh, I would take another view of the criticism. What I find interesting is, so on average, they started with six out of 10 pain. Yeah, and a lot of pain. But the, And then it was considered successful because they went down to four. Yeah. Still a lot of pain. Yeah. But 79% of people were very happy and satisfied. And I think that's like... That's what we should be focusing on. I talked to Bronnie Lennox Thompson about this. I'm like, why is, how is that so great? Like, what does this tell us about people with persistent pain that you can still have pain and be a success and that you're, you're recovered or you're living well with pain that there's something in there that I don't see people talking about enough that I think is really amazing. Why are these people so satisfied with four out of 10? What changed there? And I agree with that message. But I want to know if they explicitly uh, talked about that with people. Uh, well, I guess not, I can't find it. I guess you're implicitly talking about that if you're helping them, if, if you're helping them with their um, functional ability. And that was where the, the where the differences are better. That starts off at 12 on a scale of one to 24 and it goes down to six. Yeah. So I'm not sure what, what those numbers exactly mean, but I guess that's a 50% reduction in your di disability. So people are doing a lot more stuff than they were doing before. They're living better with pain. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like that I, that is, I think that's one of the most important messages to get out there for public health. That it, it's okay. Like it's not unusual to still have pain, right? That you can still live well with this.
Yeah. And I wonder if some way that this was like a type of acceptance and commitment therapy accidentally. Yeah. That yeah. This, this is what happened that people focused on something else besides, besides the pain yeah. and then they were not suffering anymore. Yeah. And, and they, and the, and the people who have had the chronic pain, they're always talking about, we don't like this number system. We hate this number system. It doesn't tell us enough. You know, to, to, today it's a four, today it's a six, today it's something else. I mean, maybe there's a sense in that the in the after a year, you go down to four, but in some sense, it's not as bad as a four as the as the other four as the four before. You know what I mean? Like maybe you can have a four like some fours are worse than other fours. Uh So so in a way, it really should be a three or a two or something if you could really quantify it. But there's something that's perhaps there's some benefit in the quality of the pain if not the quantity i know that's this is speculative but uh you know maybe there's something to that i don't know no it, it's almost you go from like i'm not cool with this pain to i'm comfortable now it's fine yeah. this is my pain yeah yeah but you were asking about the biggest criticism well let's well let's go to before doing that let's go, uh it's get to some of the benefits. It's a controlled study. It's a well done study in some ways. What's your overall impression of like the how how well done the study is? So that it's amazing what they did. So the, there's three groups and I think they each had around 150 people in them, which is just unbelievable. And then and then what they did their therapists there's either 6 to 8 therapists in the two intervention trials. And they're all trained. And I don't mean like they had a weekend. They did like multiple bouts of training. And it was just, it was just Peter O'Sullivan and JP Canero that did the training. So these, like Peter O'Sullivan could probably retire. I'm sure he's fine. He doesn't need to work, you know. And so he did all of this extra training for people that you wouldn't often see in these studies. Although there are some others. So just all this extra work. And so the design is just pretty amazing in that respect for the numbers that they got and then the the rigor in there and the controlled group is usual care right the control group is that half the people just keep doing whatever it was that they were doing yeah that's that's the problem right there the control group was like yeah you can go see whoever you like but we're not going to like so they go see a chiro or a physio or exercise but they wouldn't assign them to that they wouldn't know how many times they would track how many times they saw the person, but it wasn't, they weren't, they weren't really told, Oh, this is some special treatment that you're going to get. And then we're going to evaluate this treatment that you're receiving. So it could be that everyone in the control group sat home and did nothing despairing that they were getting no treatment at all. I think there was some, they would have tracked that. I don't know the details there because they didn't memorize it, but uh, they, they, there would probably would have been some of those people, but a lot of them still saw uh, uh, healthcare professionals. Right, right, and and I think that the CFT group was allowed to keep seeing whatever professionals they wanted to keep yep. seeing. These people had had pain for a while too. It was you know it was years that they'd been in pain. So usual care, who knows what that is after years? Maybe it's not so much. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So that's your big criticism: is the control group they were they weren't you know, said, okay, you guys are going to show up and get some sort of therapy for the same amount of times that the CFT group gets therapy. Sure. Like take an approach that we wouldn't practice, take a very biomedical approach, like Shirley Sarman's approach or uh, Stu McGill's approach. And then what if you had have like said, 
So we're, we're going to put you into this evidence-based program uh, that has been shown to help people with pain and disability. You're going to see these therapists who have been very well trained over a number of months. Uh, and now you're going to see them six to eight times uh, over, over the year. And we're going to track your improvement through there. You know what I mean? Like you, yeah. you can see that in, they have a table that's on the confidence that people felt. So, you, you know, for example, um, the, the people who stayed in usual care, uh, tw- 10 and 19% either felt very unconfident or unconfident. And then in the CFT group, zero and 1% uh, felt like that. So maybe, so maybe the confidence level was the, the, the factor. <laughs> well, how much do expectations influence pain? I think, right? they, yeah. So th- th- there, there could, there could be, be something there, but it all depends what you want to conclude here. Like this is still valid. You conclude doing CFT is definitely better than usual care. Where I have like where I want to be critical is, and I want to advocate for CFT, but I don't know if I can say is CFT better than the MSI, the movement system impairment approach or something yeah. like that. Is it better than uh, a very well-rounded manual therapy approach, you know, where someone is engaged and listens or things like that, or, or I would go even beyond it. Like maybe the specific things of the CFT approach don't even matter. Maybe you need someone who understands and listens to you, provides an explanation for your pain that really resonates with you. But that explanation in and of itself doesn't have to be accurate. So hold on for a second. Like imagine if you just have to give them an explanation that makes sense to them, and then you have to give a solution to that. So like you could tell someone, oh, we found your low back pain. We've gone through MRIs. A lot of times what happens is you you have this pain because your disc starts to herniate. It doesn't show up on the MRI, but it starts to push out a little bit. And it, it, it irritates these nerves that are on the outside of the disc. And then over time, you become sensitized the more and more that you flex. And then the nerves and the nervous system get more prone to feeling this pain because there's something called central sensitization. And it's caused from this peripheral nociceptive input from the disc. And so when we did an assessment with you, we kept finding that you had pain with flexion, flexion, flexion. And that's why I haven't. No one has done the appropriate exam on you before. So what we have to do is we have to stop doing that. And we're going to build up your system to avoid aggravating that disc and that nociception. And slowly what's going to happen over time is that central sensitization and your nervous system will settle down because we've gotten rid of that nociceptive input to the nervous system. And you're going to do it with these exercises and we'll build you up to do more and more of the things that you love over uh, eight to 12 weeks. Yeah. Right. What, what if that's it? What if someone just has to be given an explanation that makes sense and then an intervention that is um, like coincident with that, 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 that fits with that yeah. explanation? Do, well, do you know guess, what I mean here? Like, I don't agree with that stuff. No, no I'm saying, I, what I know what you mean. I think, I think probably the problem with explanations that, you know, create optimism and maybe help with pain and help with behavior is that if that explanation isn't that accurate, it's it's fragile and uh, it's going to be disconfirmed by evidence sometime in the future. So if your explanation is, hey, I found that you're moving the wrong way and now we're going to move the right way. Well, that explanation may hold for like a month or two while the natural course of history is making you better anyway. But at some point, 
you, that's not good. It, that, uh, that's not true. So you're going to find out it's not true at some point. And then you're going to be disillusioned, disempowered, and looking for the next therapist and in kind of a bad place. Maybe not in a bad place in the short term, in the, um, uh, in the medium term, but in the longer term, that explanation is maybe not serving you as well. And that doesn't get reflected in these studies that well. It's another reason the CFT uh, study was impressive, right? In the long term, there was a pretty good result. That, these results held for a year. Uh, yeah. we're, we're, we're talking about these good results at a year, which is uncommon, quite common to get good results for all this stuff in the short term and medium term. It's really at the year point that this stuff starts to fall apart. Right. And in this case, that didn't happen. So do you know the Van Dillen study in 2020? Is that the, the uh, is that the movement uh, system impairment? Yeah. The MSI. Yeah. What what they find? Yeah. So I kind of explained a little bit of what they do. They're very much, you have pathological movement patterns we're going to teach you how to how to avoid those. And if you look at their pain results at a year, it's pretty comparable. They go, uh, I don't have my glasses on. <laughs> um, but you know, I believe it's it's from around six out of ten of pain down to down to four ish. It's the really? same I didn't know that. thing. But uh, didn't Van Dillen also find that the uh, MSI was no different than general exercise? So in, that was in her preliminary study, and then they repeated it, and this is the one that got published in the uh, in JAMA. Uh, and uh, both groups did well, the strength and flexibility group, but there was a trend, or not a trend, statistical significant increase for the motor skill training. And I shouldn't even tell you this, because this is exactly what I don't really agree with. No, I like to say that's why, that's the folks, this is why I've got Greg on. I just brought up this theory. He said, here's a, here's a study why your theory is completely wrong. <laughs> and then he doesn't even like it, so that's good. No, I mean, yeah, like, ah, sorry, uh, pain, pain. Yeah, here we go. Um, 4.7 down to 1.8. I mean, oh, wow. Yeah, that's, yeah, that, that's a, that's big after a year, right? And then, yeah. And then the strength and flexibility group, which I like too, is 4.7 down to 2.6. Huh. Right. So, so that's the thing. Like, I, I, I and, and CFT, I, again, where you see people run a little bit too excited is, some people are making claims that it's superior to other interventions and they're trying to do it by looking at the research that's out there. And I, I don't think you can say that you would have to, you'd have to control for these other variables here. Right. Right. So, uh, well, let's talk about some other recent studies that, uh, you know, throw cold water and some of the things that we'd like to believe. There's been a few studies uh, questioning the value of, exercise for knee pain, which is something that we thought we could uh, be a little bit more sure about. Do you, do you recall those? Uh, yeah. I mean, I don't like to talk about this, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> so um, because for the longest time, my, my shtick was like, Hey, what's important is you just exercise if you have knee pain. You don't just have to really it. worry about it. changing movement patterns. You just have to build a tolerance to activity and all of that stuff. Uh, and, and then now you're, you're kind of seeing, you're seeing, in, so with NeoA, there's, you have the GLAD program that's out there, which I've been critical of for the same reason I'm critical of the CFT paper. There's never a control group. 
And that's a bit of, and they're making really strong conclusions about the way you should move uh, being related to knee osteoarthritis that people have. But there was a recent trial that came out where they compared the GLAD exercise program with a, a saline injection, like a placebo knee injection, and there wasn't any difference in pain or function. Great. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you what do you take from that? Do you, do you, or were the other studies finding that exercise for knee pain uh, are were those flawed? Was this one flawed? Is it just another drop in the in the bucket of many, many, many different studies, how much does that shift your opinion on the value of exercise or, you know, just load it for knee pain or other stuff? So again, I'm still an optimist here. I would say we have options because these people really do have significant changes in pain. Uh, It just means that exercise is one way to achieve it. And one of the criticisms of that trial is like saline injection isn't really inert. It might actually have, you know, changes there and and then you know there is a powerful non-specific effects as, as well to having a doctor do that but the, the way i view it is it's just options what always upset me with the glad and i don't even do manual therapy is they would say do 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 these exercises don't do man not the glad people would say that other people would say it's superior than to manual therapy which is something that you can't say because if if you did a manual therapy trial with 100 people and you didn't have a control group guarantee you'd have comparable uh, pain reductions like we only get in trouble when we start making these like grander statements that's always been my issue so again we just have options yeah that's what so, I believe. so if that saline study was was a saline injection study was uh that was the control group for like you know surgery or ultrasound everyone would be saying aha these things don't work but when it's for exercise people say ah well maybe uh, then they've got then they want to look at the nuances. Yeah. I mean, everyone will slam ultrasound and I always have. And then, then you look at why they're slamming it and they'll say, well, the ultrasound, there's ultrasound papers. Again, they're short term, three months where people have had large reductions in knee pain, but you'll never see that show up in a, in a knee pain clinical practice guideline without them mentioning it and then saying, let's ignore this paper because there is no control group. Uh-huh. Yet then at the same time, they'll like include papers on exercises that don't have control groups. <laughs> right, right, right. So, I mean, it's hard to do these studies, right? It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of money. Um, they're very complex. There's a ton of different ways to to make a mistake. They take years to do. Um, sometimes it makes me like not that optimistic that we're making a lot of progress in figuring out uh, what works and what doesn't work. And all of these studies have to be taken with a grain of salt and we're not sure what they mean and they have to compare them to the to the weight of the evidence. Uh, what do you think about that? How much are we learning about what works and what doesn't work for musculoskeletal pain, let's say, over the last decade or two? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... I think a lot of it is like we're just undoing a lot of the nonsense that we talked about. I think the good recommendations for low back pain and exercise and, and a lot of injuries and, and pain, I think the good recommendations were around 20 or 30 years ago. I think we just get excited about things that are fluffy and not necessary. And a lot of these newer trials are pulling back that fluff. That That's kind of what I think. So, I don't know if that's a step forward or not. 
Because it's not like the biopsychosocial model is uh, is new. Right. Right. I mean, it's it's really it's it's a very like I mean, I like to use the word common sense. It sounds really common sense to me. It's kind of common sense problem solving. If you weren't I mean, what's the first thing people do when they've got no medical expertise at all and they want to solve a problem, uh, you know, with regard to pain? They stop doing the movement that hurts. They find alternative ways to do the movement. They get reassurance from friends. They start to maybe rest a little bit more. And then when it's safe to get moving again, they start to get moving again. You know, it's it's pretty common sense. Yeah. And I, but then you say, what are the barriers to that? And that's what a lot of the research is doing. It's it's getting rid of all the bunk. That's why we still need the debunking because people keep adding bunk uh, through the years. Yeah. So are we debunking faster than bunk can be added? Uh, you know, maybe so. I mean, it Ooh. seems to me like a lot of the results are negative that the good, the good, the good, you know, controlled trials that I see, I think it's easier to learn things about this that are, are not true than to learn what, what is true. And what seems like what we're left with is just this kind of like common sense, you know, the guidelines we have about back pain, it doesn't, doesn't give us any magic bullets, but it gives us this kind of you know, process to move through. Yeah. But people aren't doing common sense. And that's where O'Sullivan will say like, you know, what are these people doing in usual care? That that's the thing. And I would say a lot of it would be pretty questionable. Yeah. And then right? and that's why I still think the CFT is such a good framework for people. If we, if you could look at that CFT trial and pull, pull out what the active and ingredients in there uh, are, I think, that that's what we that's what we should look into it for and there's probably lots of different ways that you could do cft yeah right so i mean what, what, summarize for us what you, i know you've got your idea of the active ingredients maybe part of it symptom modification or movement optimism just uh you, maybe just kind of sum up for us what what are what do you think are the are the key ingredients to any good program so it's, it's everything they write, like really helping people understand what's going on and giving them an explanation for their pain that is much more optimistic. That, that's the big one there, right? Not an explanation, like you said, that can, you know, kind of be uh, disproven by your experience quickly over time. And that's negative. So a really positive explanation that leads, that feeds into good uh, management of that. Right. And, and that could be doing more of something, doing less of something. Like, like you said there, it's could be changing how, how, how they move. Uh, and then, uh, so that would be like the mechanical stuff. And then this is what I, I actually think is really hard is I thought I came up with this and then I read it in the CFT thing. <laughs> I thought I had like insight because I take all these courses on biopsychosocial. I'm like, how am I supposed to remember all these things? And I would just say, just ask someone, how can you be healthier? Because health is biopsychosocial. But then if you look at the CFT since, I don't know, 2017, they have their section, like, get healthy. <laughs> so they beat me to everything. Uh, uh, but I don't think you can just tell someone, hey, get healthy. I think you you have to connect with that person and resonate with them and guide them through it. And that takes coaching, right? And that takes time to help them do these things. Like there's a lot of barriers to just getting healthy. So that's, I think that's where the skill and the difficulty is. How do you help people uh, do this? And, th and that's why CFT is nice. If you read what they say, they're like, we're coaches, we're not fixers. And I'm like, oh, they are, they're speaking my language. Cool. 
Well, uh, Greg, Barry. thanks a lot for uh, coming on today. Thanks, Todd. Nice to see you. Nice to see you. <laughs>